you're listening to Unlimited Hangout. I'm your host, Whitney Webb. After taking some time off from the podcast for the holidays, we are back today and joined by repeat guest Robbie Martin, an independent journalist, documentary filmmaker, and host of the Media Roots podcast. Today, Robbie and I will be discussing some key people in the current Trump-verse, their role in promoting QAnon narratives despite their deep state past, with a focus on Rudy Giuliani and his longtime protege and now Trump surrogate, Bernard Carrick. We will also be touching on the newest and currently most controversial figure around the pro-Trump team seeking to challenge the election, Lynn Wood, and how the Stop the Steal movement is likely to play out over the course of January, particularly in the lead up to Inauguration Day on January 20th. So thanks for coming back on Unlimited Hangout, Robbie. It's great to have you back on. Thanks for having me on again, Whitney. Of course. So uh, we are recording this on Tuesday, January 5th, a day before what is likely to be a final Stop the Steal rally in Washington, D.C. As some of you may know, that rally tomorrow takes place on the same day that the votes of the Electoral College are to be counted. Earlier today, we had Trump tweet out that, quote, the vice president has the power to reject fraudulently chosen electors, end quote, hinting that Mike Pence could act to dismiss the votes of some and possibly many electors. Of course, if that were to happen, we would collectively be thrown into a tornado of electoral chaos pretty quickly, raising the specter of a lot of the uh, false flag and manufactured violence concerns that we were talking about uh, back closer to Election Day. So, Robbie, before we get into some of these more interesting figures currently surrounding Trump, who have been guiding key parts of this Stop the Steal movement in a both official and unofficial capacities, um, what are your expectations of this rally tomorrow? And do you think it's possible that either Pence or someone else may intervene in the electoral vote counting process? Yeah, it's well, the Mike Pence thing is really interesting to me because uh, not just Lynn Wood, but other people in the Trump administration, including Trump himself this morning, have put Mike Pence in the position to essentially, if he doesn't make a concerted effort to somehow, you know, stop this electoral count or freeze it or reverse it, then they're setting him up to essentially be number one enemy in the crosshairs of the QAnon army, which is kind of fascinating to me that Trump would be, would do that to his own vice president. Um, so I don't know what Mike Pence is going to do, but I know that Mike Pence has been a loyal kind of deep state foot soldier for a long time to a certain extent. People might not realize that he actually was one of the people who came front and center during the anthrax scare and tried to keep tying it back to Iraq and even brought his family to the hospital to get like Cipro shots and with news cameras there. Um, he continued to push this lie even after Ari Fleischer in the Bush administration said that it wasn't Iraq. So there's something odd about Mike Pence's existence or role in all of this that I haven't quite been able to put my finger on. So, I mean, I'm of two minds of this. I think that either he's completely unwilling to do such a crazy thing or he's completely ready and willing to basically self-emoliate and kamikaze himself for this larger cause or whatever his role is. So I honestly can't say. It'll be interesting to see what <laughs> Pence actually ends up do, uh, doing with this and the rally itself um i think it's kind of a similar thing for me is i think that we are it's very likely 
that there will be some kind of violence like we haven't seen before on behalf of the MAGA protesters. Um, but it's also likely there'll be something provoked, um, you know, with either COINTELPRO or something to that extent. Or it's possible nothing will happen at all. It'll just sort of fizzle out and kind of go out with a whimper. Um, but my fear is still that the QAnon movement and the energy that it still has, and it's really actually kind of enveloped the entire Trump movement at this point. There almost is no distinguishing the QAnon movement from the hardcore MAGA movement. So my fear is that there's going to be a reckoning just psychologically for those people once they finally realize it's over. Um, and that I am very concerned about. And I don't know if it's going to happen as soon as tomorrow. Um, but, you know, when Biden walks into the White House, a lot of people are going to be very, very upset. I mean, there are already postings all over social media of people who are hardcore Trump supporters or even QAnon supporters talking about how they're, they've basically had to stop talking to their own family. Um, I saw a husband the other day saying that his wife and kids think he's crazy that Trump is still going to take this election and, and he's had to like move out of his house as a result of this. So wow. I, I, I fear that there's going to be, you know, I hate to be dark about this, but as much as we're likely to see actual violence at the rally itself, I think we're also going to be seeing violence in the home too of some of these extremely cult sort of cult supporting Trump people you know, even things like murder suicides, I am worried about like domestic incidents happening. So I am pretty worried about what's going to happen. Um, and I, I think it's just so open ended at this point, Whitney, that really anything could happen. I mean, it could be even, you know, when they went to the Supreme court because the Supreme court rejected their case in the last rally, I mean, nobody tried to like break the windows of the Supreme court or set it on fire or anything. But like, I think that that's that kind of scenario is in the cards. Um, I, I could easily see something like that happening. Um, uh, but you know, in terms of like people actually put, putting their bodies on the line to like blockade the white house or something to make sure Trump can stay in. I don't know. You know, I don't know how far that's going to go. I, I think it's more likely that we'll see like an individual act of something that could be perceived as like domestic, you know, terrorism, whether right. it's set up or not. Um, to me, that seems more like it's in the cards in terms of something happening in DC. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you, but I think there it, it's already looking like there's going to be some agent provocateurs, if you will, uh, there. Um, so for example, on Twitter, there's been talk of some people uh, saying they're heading to the rally to support President Trump and say they won't rule out storming the Capitol if his commander in chief commands him to do so. And uh, stuff like this circulating on there, right? And at the same yeah. time, we're having, um, you know, this, this uh, lawyer, we're going to talk a little bit uh, about a little bit later today, Lynn Wood has been really active on on Twitter on the Mike Pence front as well, actually threatening uh, the vice president, surprisingly, um, from a pro-Trump <laughs> uh, angle, I guess you could say, um, saying he's a he's a traitor and all this stuff, saying he's close to the CCP, having this really militaristic rhetoric about China, that we're basically at war with China, um, and, um, you know, a bunch of other stuff that is really just like... Uh, crazy, including calls for limited martial law. And I was actually watching the pre-rally for the Stop the Steal thing tomorrow. And a lot of the comments were saying stuff like martial law is the only solution. Um, Lynn Wood has talked about specifically limited martial law, whatever that means. Amazing. Um, yeah, really crazy to think about how 
you know, this group of people or like, you know, InfoWars listeners or, or whatever, <laughs> you know, back uh, uh, several years ago would have been totally against any that type of rhetoric from anyone ever. And now are, uh, some of them are heavily promoting this, this idea that it's the only way to save the democracy is to declare martial law. I mean, wow, what a psyop, right? Yeah, it's, I mean, it has to be on some level, some kind of psyop. This is why I think it's a, been a mistake for people to really want to try to wrap up the whole QAnon narrative in some kind of neat, tidy package saying, well, it was probably just a LARP. And yeah, Trump is dog whistling to it, uh, but it's just because he's desperate. And it really is just the work of these 8chan trolls and these LARPers. I mean, there has to be something more going on here to it. That There's been no other conspiracy movement or conspiracy theory online that has enveloped this many people into a singular limited hangout narrative like this that serves yeah. the ruling class to yeah. this extent. This is unprecedented. It has to be some kind of psyop. And and by saying that, I don't think that that means that it's the CIA or you know some kind of state intel agency necessarily either. It could just be, you know, I was reading an interesting article the other day that was proposing this theory that it was basically a conglomeration of private intel networks that included some companies in Israel, um, some companies in Eastern Europe, uh, a, a, a group in the UK, and a bunch of groups in the US all sort of working in conjunction with the sort of Cambridge analytical model of data mining. I mean, we talk all about you know how Silicon Valley, why aren't they doing more to stop this? Why aren't they doing more to crack down on it? They're not cracking, you know, I see all these liberal blue checkmark people who study QAnon outraged that they're not doing more to crack down on the QAnon accounts, you know, because they already started this purge. But in reality, Whitney, if you think about how QAnon must have been able to take float, they had to have the basically a data mind database of not just like human psychological behavior, but all of our likes, dislikes. This has to be based on an engine of data mining yeah, to some degree. Absolutely. So Silicon Valley is not just instrumental in this because they boosted the algorithm because that's how their algorithms work. They know sensationalist content makes more money, gets more clicks. It's not just that. It's that the foundation of it itself had to have been based on Silicon Valley data mining. There's just no other no, explanation. No, you are absolutely right. And actually, I, I didn't get to write about this. Uh, I was hoping to do a, a, a report at some point near the election, but I ran out of time, uh, on Mike Bloomberg's data firm that he set up for this election called... Um, called Hawkfish, but basically the DNC was trying to compete with the Republican data mining model this election cycle and set up all this new data infrastructure. And by the way, a lot of the top people in charge of that were former Silicon Valley officials uh, from Facebook, Amazon, Twitter, um, and what have you. And they set up this huge data warehouse called Phoenix uh, that was based at Google and just like accumulated tons of information prof uh, about people, about registered voters, profiling them on the left and the right. Um, mm -hmm. which is interesting, including people they knew they were very unlikely to sway to vote Democrat at any point, just accumulating like vast amounts of information from all these databases. And then you have these other private firms tied up with that or contracting for the DNC, like Hawkfish that was, like I said earlier, uh, set up by Mike Bloomberg has a lot of really shady ties to Silicon Valley and shady people, um, and as well. And so there was definitely a huge data component 
to this past election and also the previous election. And, you know, it got talked about some for 2016, but for 2020, it really slipped under uh, the radar and a lot of the focus on was there fraud or, you know, um, you know, shady things going on behind the scene in the election. It's sort of a, uh, you know, a, an avenue that hasn't really been pursued much by either left or right, surprisingly, uh, considering that there's probably a lot, <laughs> a lot there. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's one of the mo biggest conveniences for everybody out of the Russiagate narrative is that it essentially creates this perception that the main political, you know, the people meddling the most in our electoral process are somehow Russian state actors. And while I will concede that there probably were was some attempt, you know, to do some shenanigans, I mean, it would only make sense, but the idea that that's somehow this big concern. I mean, clearly it's, it's sort of almost a, this convenient way to cover up how many domestic and privatized like political actors and, and Intel agencies and data mining people have manipulated what we're seeing now. I mean, it is, I, I guess I keep going back to this idea that it's one of the, at least for me, one of the best ways to explain how QAnon blew up to the degree that it has. I mean, I'm sure people have used these engines and apparatuses before in elections, but not to this extent. Like this is this is really sort of a it just eclipsed everything else. Um, and I think I, I don't remember why I even brought up QAnon originally. Maybe it was because you brought up Lynn Wood. Um, I did. <laughs> but but it is getting to the point where this has become indistinguishable from the mainstream Trump movement. And that's one thing I keep asking myself is do these, a lot of these people now who are kind of getting on Trump's side to, to push the stop the steal thing, do they realize that they're how deep this is already enmeshed with the QAnon engine? Do they not care? Are they willfully ignorant? I don't really know. I mean, one example that's interesting to me is there's this general Robert Spaulding, um, who I fight with all the time on Twitter. For some reason, he's always replying to me. He's a Hudson Institute shill. Who also oh, uh, has, who's also one of the biggest people to scare people about 5G. Actually, if you look back at all the Hawaii 5G fear mongering stuff, a lot of it came from him. And it's not a surprise to find out that he has his own 5G company. And guess what it's oh, called? Weird. It's called Q Networks. And what's interesting is Robert Spaulding took the Q oath. On Twitter, and then immediately when people started calling him out for it, I said, "Oh, I didn't know what that was. That was an accident. I just thought I was taking an oath to the Constitution." So, I think on some level, a lot of these more mainstream people who don't come out as insane like Lynn Wood, they're playing games here. They know what QAnon is. They understand how powerful the engine is, and they're using it to their advantage. And you know, so it's interesting to see someone like Mike Pence be put in those crosshairs, like. You have to do this or else basically we're going to turn – the QAnon army is going to turn against you. We already saw what happened to Tucker Carlson when he mildly pushed back on Sidney Powell. They they pizzagated him like within 48 hours. Um, <laughs> yeah. So that's sort of a – I think that's a warning. On some level, even people like Ted Cruz and Rubio, they must know that if they turn hard against Trump, they're going to get burned by QAnon. I mean so – I, I don't know. I don't know what they're thinking, but I think on some level they must all be they have some understanding that this is happening. Yeah. And I also think this is going to lead to some major internal rifts within the Republican Party, which is interesting to see the Democrats also have that going on on their side. Also, like both parties are sort of, you know, splitting at the seams between these very two different like sub movements within them that don't really 
uh, aren't able to really like get along, you know, because, you know, they have their Mm -hmm. establishment wings and then these populist wings, which, of course, are like really different. I mean, comparing QAnon to like, you know, the populist left or whatever is not what I'm trying to do. Right. But, you know, these are kind of broad movements in a sense. So you can't really, uh, uh, you know, cookie cutter them all. But uh, I mean, it's just a really wild and unprecedented situation. And, you know, it's worth thinking about um, what we wanted to talk about today. Um, some of the key people <laughs> who who sort of built these, um, you know, post-election uh, narratives the way they were, you know, a lot of them uh, accurately pointing out that electronic voting machines, for example, are risky or suspect, but, you know, doing it in a very limited hangout way that serves, you know, their partisan agenda and not really, you know, diving into a lot of the other issues that underpin uh, the security um, of the electoral system. And, you know, a key person in that, of course, um, is, is one of Trump's lawyers, Rudy Giuliani, uh, who, uh, of course, has a very suspect past. And so it's very interesting. Uh, like a lot, lot of other people promoted by QAnon, they have, which is supposed to like be fighting the deep state. You know, we have these career uh, deep state assets becoming, you know, a lot of the front people for this, uh, this hopium that a lot of pro-Trump people have been huffing <laughs> over the past couple of months. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. So, um, you know, there's a lot to say about Rudy Giuliani, but um, I don't know, Robbie, do you want to give a brief summary of some of Giuliani's greatest hits since the 2020 election? And then we can go into his past a little bit. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, it, it was clear from the very beginning of the Trump presidency that Rudy Giuliani was was somehow going to be part of his administration. Um, there's actually... Uh, I want to say that there was talk that Trump was going to make him attorney general when Trump's uh, first got into office. it was office. DHS. Or maybe that was Safter. Yeah, maybe mm-hmm. either one. I mean, I, 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 I remember attorney general for this presidency. I mean, he was, as you suggested before we started recording, I think he was floated as DHS under the Bush administration. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So maybe that was in the cards as well. Um, but he... You know, so I'm not surprised to see him coming out as being one of Trump's most loyal advocates and, you know, just sort of representatives. Um, But it is just so strange, Whitney, how when I well, I guess you asked me what is what are his greatest hits now? I mean, the thing that got the most attention in the press, at least, is him doing the total gardening and landscaping a conference where it was like announced it was going to be at the four seasons. That was super (laughs) weird. Um, the hair dye dripping down his face, uh, you know, even throwing Sidney Powell under the bus after that press conference was interesting that he sort of had to make an announcement that Sidney Powell was no longer part of the team, that she was going to be doing things independently. Um, that press conference was just shocking. Um, and wild. Yeah. And, and Giuliani, you know, was also front and center with the Hunter Biden laptop stuff and oddly would regularly confess that he was in possession of what he described as child pornography. Um, you don't – that's illegal. Like it's just, just strange to think that they would be going to that extent that he would be pushing this idea that he possesses a laptop with video footage of children being raped on it and he's just admitting that. I mean so I don't – you know, those kind of games that those people play like Lynn Wood – was even, I mean, I don't know if you saw his recent tweets. He went completely off the sort of the pedo gate, pedo elite deep end last yeah. night saying mm-hmm. that John Roberts, he's about to expose this major pedo network that involves John Roberts and Isaac Cappy's last 
video yeah, dead man switch that, that he has also. it mm-hmm. and he's about to post it and it's like why are you why are you doing this also why are you admitting he, obviously he's not telling the truth there's some sort of weird game being played here but why would you be saying i have possession of child pornography and i'm going to release it like why I, it's just such an odd thing to admit well i um, think it's to muddy the waters about the whole <laughs> like pedophilia issue in terms of like epstein and intelligence agencies and stuff QAnon has done that to a huge degree people are like oh well, yeah. you believe that about epstein well you must be QAnon, even if you hold literally no other quote-unquote QAnon beliefs um and and things like that and that's why you have mainstream media people now saying stuff like oh the epstein scandal is a gateway to QAnon and all of this stuff and it you know it may have a censorship motive in that sense when they censor QAnon content they may censor epstein content as well for example, you're absolutely right or something like that i think that that could be a likely uh a likely explanation for it it's obviously pretty unfortunate but i think that was part of you know the the uh, agenda behind QAnon for a long time um, you know, going back to Pizzagate or whatever to sort of uh, discredit yeah. even legitimate uh, sources of information in that sphere um, as sort of like crazy conspiracy, whatever. And at the same time, of course, we have the uh, DHS and the FBI sort of creating creating this narrative, leaking these memos over the past two years that conspiracy theorists and also, you know, in QAnon conspiracies specifically are domestic terror threats and building this up. And, and making these policy changes suggest, su- suggesting this shift to a domestic war on domestic terror and things like that all going up at the same time. But I think a lot of it, too, is to sort of make these these issues of, um, you know, unaccountable elites or or intelligence agencies uh, using, you know, children as blackmail, something that they've been doing, uh, not just in the U.S., but in other countries around the world, you know, for decades, sort of delegitimizing that by trying to link it to people that are, you know, <laughs> saying all sorts of Crazy. things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's what's interesting to see even someone like David Icke leading the charge in the UK on this subject as well. I mean, it's like the guy who basically popularized the lizard conspiracy stuff is the front and center of that. And that's it's kind of fascinating. It's like, is that deliberate? Is that designed to muddy the waters? It's really hard to tell. I mean, you know, Alex Jones, was he there to muddy the waters of the 9-11 truth movement? Was he just a unwilling participant in some kind of larger controlled opposition op? It's kind of it's kind of hard to decipher, but we but sort of looking back on that, it's like, well, yeah, on some level, he probably was whether he was willing or not. I mean, um, but but that but you brought up something earlier. I just want to touch on I, I forgot to mention is that this idea now that people like Linwood and other actual Trump surrogates who are pretty prominent people are now saying we need limited martial law. It's not just Flynn. It's other people as well. Yeah. Even some like. Congress uh, people are saying this and that to me is just so fascinating because that is the culmination of QAnon breaking through entirely to the mainstream, not just the populace, but like the actual politicians in charge now are it's like they've closed the circle. You know, we were laughing Mm -hmm. last year about how, oh, my God, they trolled everybody into believing in martial law. But I had never I didn't imagine, oh my, that the politicians would actually start encouraging martial law. Like that's a step that I just didn't predict. And that to me is like, oh my God, like this really is closing that circle. And it's even worse than yeah. I predicted it would that's be in a certain way. That's why I really tend to view this as an op because you have stuff going on, you know, on the left too, trying to get establishment Democrats to support, you know, a more uh, authoritarian domestic government. And, and things like mm-hmm. that under different guises. And now you have, you know, these people on the right 
including some gun toters, people that would, in another universe, I guess, be most likely to resist martial law, defend the Constitution, what have you, now supporting this idea um, of this, you know, (laughs) based around this, like, political savior complex around Trump, that there needs to be basically, you know, a sort of, like, civil religion dictator-y figure, um, you know, sort of in charge of everything, and he's going to clean everything up and solve all our problems magically and all of this. They've sort of been... Uh, neutralized in a sense, they're not going to rise up and do any sort of domestic uprising while Trump is technically, if ceremonially, ceremonially in charge right now and things like that. So it's just a really, um, you know, it, <laughs> in, in a lot of ways, it's just a, such an unprecedented situation that, you know, I mean, we've been seeing this building for months, but it never stops being <laughs> so bizarre, uh, the situation in which, in which we find ourselves. Yeah. And I'm also... I mean, I know we, we, we wanted to move on from QAnon, but I guess the last thing I'll say is I'm really um, fascinated by whoever is posting as Q decided not to flip that switch, and they have that power now. I mean, it's not just Trump who could say, tweet today, you know, I'm not leaving, you know, helps fight for my like right to stay in the White House. It's also that QAnon... You know, it could not be like it, it could absolve itself of any legal consequences. Trump still could face consequences for saying something absolutely insane to activate the Q army. Q won't face any. They're anonymous. So why haven't they used their power since Trump um, since Election Day? Like they haven't said anything. They haven't directed any orders. They even haven't made a committal statement on if Trump won or lost the election. And I am really curious about that. And I'm wondering, like, what are your thoughts on why that is? Do you think there's like a transition from the anonymous queue to sort of these public faces like Flynn? Who probably yeah, they've moved it to public faces. Yeah, totally. I think I think they've moved it to public faces. But I think the main purpose of that is just to string people along long enough until a certain a date or threshold is passed, you know, that there's going to be yeah. something that comes from the legal team and they're not going to have to do anything and they're going to magically fit. You know, that's how sort of the, how the narrative's been since the election for, for, you know, that sphere of U.S. politics. Oh, they're going to have this press conference and they're going to reveal everything. They're going to drop this big old truth bomb, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. or whatever. And then it's been, you know, that and then it's a letdown, really. And then another one, you know, it's been sort of like to string them along is how it looks to me. Um, and so you're having QAnon giving less sort of like esoteric uh, Q drops, right? And instead you're having this strategy move to these public faces who are like, we're fighting the deep state. Um, but you see them and they're sort of, what they're doing is, like I said, uh, you know, stringing these people along, giving them false hope, leading them to some sort of, I don't want to, I don't know if it's an event or a climax or just until, you know, after inauguration day when Biden's already in and, you know, the people were just chilling out, you know, just waiting for something to happen the whole time instead of, you know, being more active or whatever. Yeah. And the strangest thing, Whitney, is like four years ago, I was not a believer that Trump was authoritarian enough to actually imagine himself as a dictator or even like a mini version of Hitler or a stupid Hitler. Everyone wanted to see him. You know, when Robert Kagan, for example, was writing articles about how Trump was essentially going to be, you know, a new Hitler. Um, it, it almost seems in a way that's, that they've trolled him into being this sort of fascist dictator or wannabe one that they fear mongered about. It's like, I don't think Trump intended or started out that way, but it's like all the circumstances and the scenario of the last four years has sort of almost 
and I'm not making any excuse for him. It's almost like created this sort of him in a corner situation where I just feel like they it's it's sort of like a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, it's absolutely it's quite odd. I think they did that um, on purpose, that they sort of like me too. you know, wrote the script, I guess, to sort of place him in a particular role. Um, you know, because QAnon, you know, as a psyop, right, was also scripted during this time and adapted to events and what have you. So what if the same puppet masters of QAnon have also sort of been you know, psyoping Trump himself. Uh, I think you know. I actually I think that's entirely, entirely possible and actually even likely. I mean, I think Trump has, you know, and I'm not saying this because I think he's dumb or making an excuse for him, but I think he's been he's been worked by yeah. the same people who are behind Q and on. He he's is not hugely narcissistic. In charge. And I think susceptible to people that play his ego uh, the right yes. way. You know, so yeah, I yep. tend to agree. So so then that. So I guess then that brings into the picture what in the hell is Rudy's role in all this? <laughs> like, <laughs> is he is he actually with Trump or is he part of this other side? You know, like, is he part of this faction that's actually maybe working Trump? It's it, it's it kind of a both minds of it. Well, I mean, let, let's just make a couple of points really clear first. First, Giuliani is insanely corrupt and has been for a super long time. So in terms of what faction he works for, it's whoever is, I don't know, I guess, paying him the most or offering him the most benefit or, you know, uh, how people like that operate, right? So um, he doesn't have loyalty to any sort of like morality or ethic, ethical code or, or whatever, right? So in terms of who Giuliani's working for, I mean, it's worth taking a look at his history to see who he's obviously been <laughs> been working for in the past. Um, and how that may have changed in, in recent years, right? Because, of course, you know, we are really seeing a lot of the, the now the billionaire uh, class sort of play for keeps, but a lot of internal uh, battling amongst them, I guess you could say, fighting over the spoils of a dying empire uh, type deal that, have, that those rifts have sort of opened up in, in recent years. So, you know, it could be really variable in terms of, you know, in that period where um, Giuliani's, you know, factional... Uh, loyalties uh, were lying, but um, it, it's worth talking a little bit about um, what he did before. So um, if it's cool with you, Robbie, I'll just go over some stuff and feel free to uh, to jump in whenever. Yeah. So in the 1980s, I'm, uh, I'm pretty sure his position at the Department of Justice um, was like assistant attorney general. Um, and then he went back to um, SDNY in New York and ended up overseeing um, or maybe I got the order of that mixed up. Sorry. But, um, in the 1980s, his mom, you know, Giuliani was known for a couple things during that part of his legal career. Um, one was inventing the perp walk, including of people who ended up not being charged with a crime at all. Um, and things like that later on, but they were publicly filmed, you know, walking with their head down, being arrested as sort of like a, you know, a, a reputational blow, um, that could be, you know, doled out at the whim of Giuliani. Um, during that that period of time, but also a really interesting thing, and I would argue um, this is really the point of uh, where Giuliani's star started to rise, uh, was when he went over, uh, he went after um, some of the the so-called five families of the Italian mafia um, in New York, um, and a couple of them ended up uh, actually going to prison. Uh, one died before he could be convicted, things like that. But they took out a couple of these families, and what's interesting. Um, 
as I talked about a lot in my Epstein series, is that in New York, uh, the organized crime scene, really from the beginning of the 1920s, was dominated by something called the National Crime Syndicate, which was really the Jewish-American mob headed by uh, Mayor Lansky um, and, and people like that, who had teamed up with um, the Genovese crime family headed by uh, Lucky Luciano. Um, <clears throat> in that, that alliance at some point uh, during World War II, but arguably before, got in bed with the precursor to the CIA, uh, the OSS, later became deeply involved with the CIA. Um, and that can, you know, you could argue continues to the present. So what's interesting is that in Giuliani, by taking just the Italian side of the National Crime Syndicate sort of out of the picture by sending them to prison, specifically the head of the Genovese crime family, he was able to consolidate power for that other faction, which is pretty mm -hmm. interesting. Uh, <laughs> when you think about what that means, um, it's also interesting. And that's too. his claim to fame. That's yeah. his claim to fame is mm -hmm. being a, a this this tough, tough on law crime. and order mob buster. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's it's one of the most blatant, limited hangout narrative, false narratives ever. I mean, it, it really doesn't. You know, I, so yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I <laughs> no, but it's just it's just interesting to view it that way, right? Because the media spin on those mob cases has always been, look, oh, Giuliani's tough on crime, and he took down the mafia, but he mm -hmm. only took down half of one particular long entrenched group of the mafia, allowing the other half to be really successful and honestly get really out of, uh, you know, gain tons of influence um, uh, by various uh, by various means. And it's interesting that this actually sort of happened. Uh, in World War II also, when uh, they got in bed with intelligence, uh, Luciano, uh, after Operation Underworld, which is where they teamed up with the CIA, uh, the deal that Lansky struck between the CIA and, the, on, on, and on behalf of the National Crime Syndicate was to get Luciano out of prison but deported to Italy, basically giving Lansky the whole U.S. portfolio because he was the one in the States and Luciano was sent really far away to Italy and then ended up doing CIA stuff uh, in Europe, like ties to Operation Gladio and stuff like that. <clears throat> but was obviously like, you know, that was sort of, you could argue, a consolidation move. So they sort of done that stuff before, but then they have Giuliani, um, who in the early 80s uh, was in the Reagan administration also pretty early on, um, you know, uh, basically put in this position to do that when uh, that Jewish American mob uh, group in New York had very close ties to the Reagan administration, including through Roy Cohn and people like that. And it's really interesting. One of the mob bosses Giuliani sent to prison, Tony Salerno, his lawyer forever was Roy Cohn, <laughs> which is yeah. pretty uh, weird to think about. But Roy Cohn had, had, was dead by the time this, this trial happened. But it's just, uh, you know, interesting to, to point that out. So, and also, mm -hmm. I, I think... I think it would be worth, you know, maybe I don't know how deeply people have dove into those actual cases, but, you know, and I, I'm probably only getting this from mob movies, but we all we know, culturally speaking, that when a mobster goes to prison, it's not necessarily a rough ride for them. Sometimes mobsters go to prison just to sort of, you know, do their time and they're treated very right. well in prison and actually given enormous privileges and have the access to things that nobody else has and are treated kind of like royalty. So it would be worth actually exploring what someone like Tony Salerno went through in prison. Um, you know, what his experience was like right. in terms of like point. what kind of treatment he got, but uh, <laughs> that's a whole other yeah. issue. Well, those prisons, right. Including the one Epstein died in or whatever, notoriously corrupt. I mean, if you have the right pull and you know the right people and you have enough money, you can get tons of stuff smuggled in there. Right. So prison I mean, guards are some of the most corrupt yeah. people ever. I mean, they're they're connected to organized crime. It's it's like that all over the country. So, yeah, um, just a, just a side note is what I was thinking, you know, in terms of 
what how actually obviously openly brazenly corrupt that was in terms of like a mob busting you know well yeah and another crazy point here is that the person that helped giuliani do all of this one of the people that worked directly under him on these cases was michael chertoff whose mom (laughs) uh by the way had uh worked uh undercover for israel's Mossad when she was a air flight attendant of ll airlines um that's like in her public obituary Right. So if you're talking about how this, you know, Giuliani, what he did ended up consolidating a lot of power uh, for that particular uh, other half of the National Crime Syndicate. And you have someone like Chertoff also being intimately involved. You know, um, it's 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 kind of interesting. And also we see Chertoff, of course, becoming later on uh, very involved in, in leading the Department of Homeland Security, something that people like Giuliani and his protege, uh, Bernard Carrick, end up, you know, an agency they end up. Uh, circling around um, as well. <laughs> uh, and then they have ties going back all, all of those guys together back to this period of time, uh, more or less. Uh, so anyway, after that, the, the mafia cases, uh, the other main uh, blip on the Giuliani radar, I guess, for the 1980s, uh, is when he tried to run for mayor of New York unsuccessfully the first time. And this was largely because um, during the Republican primary to be the Republican candidate for mayor of New York, he faced off with Ronald Lauder, which is pretty interesting. Ronald Lauder is, um, you know, one of the two heirs uh, or male heirs, I guess, to the Estee Lauder uh, fortunes. He's president of the World Jewish Congress, very involved in both U.S. and Israeli politics. He's arguably the billionaire that got Netanyahu his first uh, stint as prime minister in the late 90s. Uh, but of course, this is 1989 and Ronald Lauder uh, used in a massive amount of money to try and be mayor of New York during this time. Um, <clears throat> and he just had uh, the savage uh, debate and negative political campaign against Giuliani, accused him of not being a real Republican. Um, and, it, and it really dam- ended up damaging Giuliani's chances in the general election for mayor. So he ended up losing that but it's pretty interesting because a couple years later probably like three years after that ronald lauder who you know is longtime friends of um and his parents also um of trump and roy Cohn, um becomes one of the members of the so-called mega group um of of wealthy uh (laughs) quote-unquote philanthropists that include people like leslie wexner uh the bronfman brothers Steven Spielberg uh, that I talk about in my Epstein series to uh, to a pretty decent extent. So um, <laughs> uh, before I go into his first stint as mayor, is there anything you want to add, Robbie? Or maybe you want to start with that? No. Um, well, you mean Rudy? Like, uh, no. I think you should go ahead with it because I can't. Um, you were doing a good job. I, I think you should. <laughs> well, okay. So basically, uh, after um, his his first loss, right, Giuliani. Uh, is elected uh, to be mayor of New York in, I think, 1993. And then he gets reelected for a second term. And then he, you know, at the time of 9-11 is there. And, you you know, um, in terms of all the, the stuff that was going on um, in his uh, early mayor uh, career as mayor, I didn't really look into that, though. I mean, we can talk about it a little bit in terms of, um, you know, the building of uh, the emergency management bunker in World Trade Center 7 happened during that time. Uh, he elevated the career of Bernard Carrick, who we're going to be talking about in a little bit, uh, who first met Giuliani in 1990, um, was his uh, bodyguard and driver during that unsuccessful race for mayor. Um, and they stayed close, obviously, <laughs> um, in the years that followed. Um, but there's a lot to talk about um, with Giuliani and um 
sort of 9-11 anthrax related stuff. So we might as well just skip to that in the interest of time. So um, sure. <clears throat> did you want to go into the West Nile thing? Yeah. Um, so Jerome Hauer, um, who I only really learned about later through sort of 9-11 truth research, uh, was instrumental in Rudy's um, mayoral administration as right. someone who was tasked to uh, study bioterror, but also pandemics. And Rudy and him um, got a bunch of money. And I don't know if they got it actually from the federal government or just the state of New York to essentially do research on what would happen if West Nile virus outbreak happened in New York City. And at this time, West Nile virus um, had broken out before, I think, in different parts of the world. Um, it had already been around, but just the sort of coincidence and the serendipitous nature for them of getting all this funding and PR for fighting West Nile virus before it even landed in New York. And then it suddenly lands in New York in 1999 and ends up killing, I think, around 30 people is quite coincidental and yeah. frankly quite suspicious. And additionally, um, there was a sort of a seeded rumor going around, Whitney, and I don't know if you caught this in my Anthrax podcast, but that there was someone going around spreading the rumor that Saddam Hussein did it and that the West Nile virus was actually not a natural outbreak, but somehow the work of Iraq. And huh. I don't repeat that, that narrative later. was... <laughs> Yeah, that narrative wasn't directly picked up. Then, in fact, Jerome Howard was actually asked about it in a press conference. Seems like some kind of planted or, you know, I don't know who the reporter was that asked him the question. Jerome Howard denies it at that time. Now, this is a, a different Jerome Howard than the one who would later be trying to connect Saddam Hussein to the 2001 anthrax attacks. But it is strange how that narrative about Saddam Hussein being behind West Nile virus predates 9-11 and, you know, sort of was in the mix at that time. And Rudy Giuliani and Jerome Hauer received even more money um, to combat West Nile virus. And their way of dealing with it was using a essentially an, a, a not fully tested chemical um, on human beings uh, called melatheon that uh, was sprayed from basically crop duster style airplanes over parts of New York City to eradicate these dangerous West Nile virus carrying mosquitoes. Um, but it was discovered later that this chemical could potentially cause cancer. And, you know, when I, whenever this comes up in just American society in general of a, something causing cancer, what's the cancer risk? It just seems like in the end, it's always just sort of washes out into, well, this could cause cancer, but it saved more lives in the end, you know, because West Nile virus was going to kill a lot more people. Right. Nobody really knows for sure what additional damage was caused or how many people got cancer from that sprain. But it is just sort of an unprecedented event. And, and oddly, Whitney, it never really happened again in the United States. This outbreak is one of the biggest outbreaks we've ever seen. And it just sort of conveniently went away after this. Right. Now, that leads us into the odd obsession that Jerome Hauer and Rudy Giuliani's administration had over combating bioterrorism, specifically anthrax that predates nine 11 as well, mm -hmm. um, which is curious. And we already know Jerome Hauer was one of the key participants in the operation in dark winter, dark winter yeah. exercise. Um, he's also an employee of 
two of the most suspicious companies tied yes. to 9 <laughs> 11. Yeah. Um, you know, Kroll and Associates and SAIC, which ranking in terms of the most powerful defense companies, SAIC is somewhere maybe sixth or seventh down the list. Yeah. But they're actually number one on the list when you look at strange connections to 9 11 and people who could have benefited totally. from the attacks. And he was a vice president there at the time. Yes. And this is, of course, uh, what you're talking about, though, in 1999. He is still, I believe, uh, head of the Office of Emergency Management of New York City, which is why he was working with Giuliani. I don't know if we said that in case people weren't uh, familiar with that. And really quick, I just want to add some background about Jerome Hauer, like why this is suspect. Um from 1997 on, he was part of this group that was meeting with Bill Clinton about bioterrorism that included very high-ranking, very spooky individuals like Joshua Letterberg, who was one of the Jason scientists involving uh, advising the CIA and the intelligence community about scientific projects for decades. You also have Bill Patrick, the former uh, bigwig at Fort Detrick when it was still a bioweapons thing that later became a major bioterror alarmist, I would argue, uh, like mm-hmm. one of the likely perpetrators involved very much so in the 2001 anthrax attacks. And in several other very key um, individuals tied up with, you know, the, the events uh, of the of the anthrax attacks in 2001. So Jerome Hauer was part of that group, it, not many people, um, in the late 90s, um, while he was uh, in this post in New York City specifically, right? And then he, of course, leaves that post and mm-hmm. goes to work for these very spooky, uh, private, really intelligence firms, because that's really what Kroll is also, uh, and was originally mm-hmm. set up to be what was, you know, at the time doing security uh, for the World Trade Center, uh, right? So, you know, you have uh, Howard doing that. He's at SAIC. He's advising the Department of Health and Human Services on bioterrorism. He gives the secretary of HHS a personal tour of Ground Zero on the day of 9-11, even though he wasn't in his offices, but didn't tell people like John O'Neill, <laughs> the expert in Osama bin Laden, that he hired not to go, and so O'Neill dies. Um, you know, uh, so Howard is someone you don't want to trust. And so all of these weird events around the West Nile outbreak, you have to take, you know, uh, <laughs> his very spooky background uh, into consideration. I mean, Howard is a, you know, security, having been involved in setting up that bunker in Building 7 as as head of the Office of Emergency Management. Right. Um, That's and interesting. All of the other things Can I comment on there. that? Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. So the bunker is a really interesting backstory. So that that bunker was explicitly designed as some kind of preventative emergency command center for if New York was hit by some kind of major terror attack. Right. And its explicit purpose was completely abandoned by not just Rudy Giuliani and Jerome Howard, but every other underling who worked there, Mm -hmm. except for one guy who later mysteriously died from a heart attack right after Dylan Avery interviewed him for his last loose change final cut movie. Um, so that is, you know, it, it's actually probably one of the most creepy deaths of an, of a nine 11 witness, right. uh, I think to come out mm-hmm. of that whole situation. Um, and you know, this guy, uh, his name actually Bar- escapes Barry me. And I'm Jennings gonna, or something Barry like Jennings. That. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Barry Jen- Yeah. Barry Jennings. Um, but, but the strange thing about this Whitney is actually Jerome Howard and Rudy Giuliani have had some kind of public falling out over this. And yeah. they both actually point the finger at each other now as the ones who not just were responsible for devising that plan, but also deciding to abandon it. And I find that kind of interesting. Is this 
part of this sort of factionalized deep state I, I split that actually, we've been talking about. Maybe because uh, yeah, currently it... Jerome Hauer, uh, well, one of the things he does now is that, and that he says, you know, puts at the top of his resume these days is that he works for Taneo, which is Doug Band's consulting firm, and of course Doug Band is a longtime associate and you know employee of the Clintons and the architect really of the post presidency Clinton years. Uh, so, mm-hmm. and of course we have Giuliani on the opposite side right now in the, the Trump magosphere. So it's possible. So this is, I just want to explain to your listeners really quickly. This is a part of the reason why I have become so fixated on Howard and Giuliani specifically is that over the years when I've researched the anthrax attacks, I have come away with the inescapable conclusion that somehow both nine 11 and, and the anthrax attacks were, were either done by the same people or or there was crossover between the two groups mm-hmm. or group that did these yeah. attacks. Well, there was crossover They're, for sure. We know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, and it appears that whoever was trying to set up the narratives for these wanted them, wanted to make it appear that the hijackers had something to do with the attacks. This was all sort of put in play. So my thinking on this is, you know, over the years, a lot of the 9-11 truther community, the serious researchers... They've sort of there's been this sort of invisible wall between that research field and the anthrax research field. But what I've discovered is that when you actually break down that wall and start to look for connections between the two attacks and suspects, what you find instantaneously is that Rudy Giuliani and Jerome Howard are the, have the most crossover of bizarre connections to both attacks. And sort of the conspiracy narratives that have become sort of, you know, famous within those movements like World Trade Center 7. Um, So it it is very fascinating that if you look at all the potential suspects, they appear to be the most suspiciously connected to anthrax and 9-11. And that Mm -hmm. can't be ignored. That needs to be looked at. Like why, you know, it's I know it may seem crazy to people or hard to believe the idea that Rudy Giuliani, this 9-11 hero this mayor you know what he's not in the deep state people might think but he's you really America's have to mayor at, robbie yeah you have to you have to look at all these things and really have an open mind about them and 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 understand that there's there's just no way that these are coincidences right i mean so, clearly on some level both of these men had some kind of role in the in both attacks i mean that's what's so absolutely bizarre about yeah this. well they certainly have major questions to answer since we've talked a lot about jerome howard um we might as well move to giuliani uh, stuff about him and, and 9-11 so uh we know for example that on abc news with peter jennings rudy Giuliani went, went on after 9-11 and said that he had the reason that he did not occupy that emergency bunker at world trade center seven is that he had received an advanced warning that the towers were going to collapse he never said who mm-hmm. had given him that warning or really explained it much at all, but that is a claim that he did make on live television. So, of course, the question becomes, why then did no one uh, from Giuliani's office or beneath them within the city government, who were also presumably aware of these warnings, why were they not passed to the emergency management people on the ground at the towers who exactly. had no warning the building was going to collapse? Um, and, of course, as a result, you have a lot of... Um, uh, you know, uh, upset people, I guess you could say, at the uh, FDNY, uh, for example, that are really, uh, really would like Giuliani to answer that. Of course, at some point, Giuliani was publicly challenged on that, I think, when he was uh, attempting to run for president um, a few years ago and uh, of, denied having 
received that warning, even though he made that claim on on live television. So if you want to believe Giuliani, well, I don't know. <laughs> That's up to you. The other thing, of course, that Giuliani did on 9-11 that he um, should be asked about is um, why was he uh, so ardent about the speed of the removal of evidence uh, and, and or debris, what have you, um, for from, uh, you know, ground zero, uh, preventing a thorough, you know, and legitimate investigation of, of that debris. Um, and of course, the end result of that is that uh, because of how fast that cleanup was, human remains got swept up in that and some of that debris got sifted out, left behind and used to fill potholes in New York streets. So yep. like dead bodies. Of, I mean, that's just like, Bone test, dude. So, okay, Giuliani, uh, maybe you should explain that a little bit and why, well, uh, me... you know, all that evidence, uh, no one could test the debris really was was taken off. And his claims also that the air at ground zero after the attacks was fine. Um, and of course, we know it was not. <laughs> so Yeah. Let me just jump in there really quick about that deal that Rudy made, because I think this is really key to understanding the coordination that was required here. This wasn't just... Rudy as some nefarious deep state plant in the mayor's office of New York City. This was a coordinated effort between all of these federal government agencies that were on the ground that were supposed to be investigating and the city of New York's government. Because Rudy, this is the strangest thing about that, Whitney, is that Rudy was essentially given the power to decide what to do with that crime scene and how fast to do it. That makes absolutely no sense. With a crime of that magnitude, why would you give the mayor the decision-making ability to destroy the crime scene. That is absolutely baffling and really only means that he was sort of being used as a conduit to do this possibly for plausible deniability from these federal agencies that knew, you know, that were involved in this. Yeah. Or talk Um, about where he set up his command center instead of emergency management. It was on that pier where all the people from tripod two from the federal government had set up. Yes. Right. Which was going to be, I believe, a biowarfare exercise that right Giuliani's office had set up so it would take place on September 12th and these people were setting up the day in advance and Giuliani and Bernard Carrick who was in charge of the the NYPD at the time claimed that they get stuck in this building on what is it like Barclays Avenue Barclay Avenue or Mm -hmm. something like that Um, and that's why they allegedly can't get to Tower 7 um, and into the office there and so they go to this pier conveniently set up for this large federal interagency exercise involving FEMA, uh, which would later become part of DHS, right? And, and all of these different federal officials, they go there. Yes. So who are they taking their orders from in that scenario when you have all of these preparedness, um, <laughs> you know, federal federal people there? Um, and that's where Giuliani chooses to move his group instead of the very office that, you know, was fitted out with a bazillion dollars worth of expensive electronic equipment and everything mm-hmm. was designed to work off of that. Right. So it's it's pretty telling um, both the timing of that exercise and Giuliani's decision to set up the command center there. Well, there's there's an odd uh, sort of parallel with the West Nile virus outbreak. There was another major bioterror drill planned in New York City with the um, assistance of the Pentagon. Oh. And the West Nile virus outbreak actually interrupted that and and canceled that drill. So it's just kind of an odd coincidence that once again, this other major bioterror drill that Rudy was in charge of called Tripod 2 was scheduled to take place on 9-12-01. FEMA was already there with a bunch of staffers, trucks, equipment for this drill. 
And that's one thing we need that I always thought was maybe a disinfo point in the 9-11 truth movement when people would say, well, FEMA was already there. Here's a clip of them saying we were already there the night before. That's true because this is that's how it happened. It was from Tripod 2. It all actually connects back to that. So, you know, these things maybe over time where I've been like, is that disinfo? Is that a real point? It is real. And it comes from this. Right. And well, additionally, you know oh, it was sorry. all about <laughs> anthrax. It was all about anthrax. I mean, so how is this possible that a that a, only a month later, real anthrax attacks happen? And also, I just want to mention quickly that the company that Giuliani ended up selling all the steel to, one of the biggest, you know, the CCP is taking over our country. Rudy's one of the biggest China hawks right now. I mean, he's constantly yeah, talking about Yeah, but it China wasn't government. always that way. <laughs> yeah, Bayo Steel, the company that he sold all that scrap to was a Chinese company. So it's like, Wait a second, you're claiming to be against the Chinese government thinking they're this these nefarious evil plotters, but you made a deal with a big steel company in China to, take to basically all the 9/11 evidence. All evidence. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's that to me is absolutely wild and and needs to be exposed and what the, what is the deal with Bayo Steel? I mean, what what kind of company are they? I don't think people have really deeply looked into that. Um but yeah, Tripod 2, I think, is honestly one of the most sketchy things about it. Yeah, well, you know, it ended up happening, I think, a year later or something in like 2002. And so what's weird is that the exercise itself was about what they had been setting up, uh, allegedly, on September 11th and September 10th, uh, was this exercise called Tripod 2. And what that was supposed to be specifically was about administering um antibiotics to like ca police cadets and all this stuff who yeah. were there to mm -hmm. act be like crisis actors basically acting like um they were pandemic victims and then going to yeah. all these points of delivery of medical countermeasures antibiotics in this case so it's interesting to see how something that was just just supposed to be like a point of dispensing medication whatever they were supposed to be setting up for an exercise like that you know it becomes the 911 uh, federal and local government command center um, on September 11th. And they, the reasoning they gave for going there, right, was like, oh, all this advanced whatever that we needed to communicate and move things around was set up there. But if yeah. you're just dispensing antibiotics to groups of like pretend scared, you know, police cadets and students, basically, right? I mean, it just seems kind of like a weird uh, disconnect <laughs> a little bit. I don't know how you feel about that. Oh, I mean, it's an incredibly weird disconnect. And it's also just, I'm just thinking back to the actual planning of Tripod 2 itself. It's incredibly convenient that it was located far enough away from Ground Zero. And, you know, to think that they, it, it just the location of it is suspicious. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you know, I probably sound tinfoil hat to some people as I'm talking right now, but like this, it's just such an odd odd coincidence and it's it's really hard to see it as a coincidence um but I, I feel like we haven't talked maybe enough about the actual attacks and rudy's sort of subsequent um like activity in those sure go for so it. i don't know how much time um, no we have, we have time. left but, so um uh, okay yeah because i can go i can go through some of the other stuff pretty quickly so basically what we wanted to talk about with giuliani and, and anthrax not that doesn't necessarily involve uh, the playing out of the attacks itself, but sort of, sort of like the cover up and the aftermath and the cleanup, right? So, um, mm -hmm. you want to well, give did... a summary, Robbie? Sure. I mean, I'll just start by saying that Giuliani's behavior, even during the anthrax attacks themselves, is suspicious, and the reason why is because he again made himself front and center of trying to be a hero, 
some kind of PR, you know, America's mayor hero during those attacks. And he did more press conferences about the anthrax attacks than he did about the 9-11 attacks. Mm -hmm. So I think people need to look back at those. And one interesting thing, Whitney, that I have discovered in all my research of, you know, the actual attacks themselves is that the mail sorting explanation from the FBI just simply does not add up. The idea that anthrax got in all these different media buildings in New York City from simply a mail sorter or a mailroom does not make sense. There was anthrax delivered to Tom Brokaw at ABC. That actually happened for real. Um, you know, the, it was we don't know exactly who sent it, but a letter was sent addressed to Tom Brokaw at ABC News. Well, ABC News is not in the same building as 30 you Rock. Mean, you mean as NBC? NBC News? No, ABC. Was he at ABC then? Okay. Tom Brokaw was at ABC, uh, yeah. okay. I forget because he went to NBC later. Sorry. <laughs> well, this is what gets kind of murky and confusing is NBC got hit by anthrax too. Right. Anthrax was found in Dan Rather's office. Now, how does that happen that a mail sorter coincidentally can spread anthrax to two of the biggest media institutions in New York that were in separate buildings? That does not make sense yeah, from a mail sorting else perspective. Yeah, nothing else gets hit in that area, right? You would think the mail person would be going all around that neighborhood, right? Yes. All the different doors, and it only ends up in those two places when, you know, things like Dark Winter had said, oh, anthrax letters are going to be sent to the media. Mm -hmm. um, so pretty well, this, convenient. The only, other, the only other explanation that makes sense, Whitney, is that some of this anthrax had been planted directly. I mean, honestly, that and it sounds maybe nutty. But it's really the only other explanation that makes sense. Well, there's been unless no real investigation of anthrax, so I don't think it's nutty at all. Yes. <laughs> I think it's very – I mean unless, unless, we, unless we go with the idea that there were other letters that were that made to look totally innocuous that had like undetectable amounts of anthrax in them that spread them all around New York City. That's a, that, to me, that theory is almost more wild than the idea that someone involved in this operation was actually planting anthrax spores in various locations and then tipping off – people in the FBI or whoever in the CDC to go look in those locations. Right. Well, and I think, I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> no, I mean, that's, that was pretty much the end of my thought. And that's sort of how we get into this strangeness of, you know, I'm not saying that Rudy was involved in that. Um, but you know, he was, it, so it, it does sort of bring up the idea of why he got so involved in wanting to clean up, you know, with his anthrax cleanup company, that he formed after 9-11 called Bio One, why he was so interested in being involved in the cleanup of the first anthrax crime scene in mm -hmm. Florida. Um, you know, because we already have evidence that Rudy, Rudy Giuliani explicitly destroys the 9-11 crime scene forensic evidence. But we also have this other completely unrelated story about how we don't know how he got the contract. We don't know exactly how it occurred, but how he was in a position to have access to the first anthrax crime scene in Florida, the AMI building, and then subsequently got into a legal predicament with employees at AMI building yeah. for trying to destroy their stuff. So we have two examples of Rudy Giuliani being and basically in charge of destroying evidence, potential evidence from two of these major attacks. That is absolutely insane. To right. Me. Well, I want to say something about the attacks themselves. I mean, you think of like the sure. main targets, right? Um, you had uh, the senators, the three senators, right, who were standing in the way of the Patriot Act being rammed through at breakneck speed uh, by Dick yeah. Cheney, right, were the senators that were targeted. Um, uh, in, and then, of course, it, the other main target was the media, <clears throat> media building specifically. And when we look at 
the America uh, media building um, and the controversy that erupted there with Giuliani, uh, what it looks like, and we can talk more about this uh, if you'd like, um, what it looks like is that what he was specifically looking to destroy uh, were these uh, were the photo archives of the National Enquirer, which of course is a tabloid magazine uh, that of course obtains uh, pictures of prominent, powerful people, oftentimes pictures they don't want to be made public um, and, you know, houses them. And of course, uh, you know, it's very possible that uh, outlets like that um, acquire pictures and then contact those powerful people and be like, how much would you pay us to keep this secret? Um, things like that. I mean, if you keep in mind too, that National Enquirer for a long time, one of their main their owner was like a childhood friend of like CIA sex blackmailer uh, and, and Trump mentor Roy Cohn, for example. I mean, you know, the possibility of an outlet like National Enquirer doing that really doesn't seem uh, far-fetched at all. So the entrance specifically in this photo archive um, by Giuliani's bio one uh, is really interesting. And there was talk that they, you know, these photos were going to end up being incinerated and you had like photographers that had worked for these outlets demanding their pictures back, saying that they owned them uh, or that they needed to be compensated for their destruction or something. And, and, and it's really interesting uh, to think about, you know, a possible ulterior motive of the other media outlets perhaps that were targeted, that they wanted access to something at those that was physically present um, at those studios. And of course, if you have a bioterror attack um, or anthrax in that building, you know, then the cleanup or the investigation, you know, gives certain people access to areas of those buildings they otherwise wouldn't have access to. So in something interesting to consider. Well, yeah. And it's, I mean, the, after all my study of the, of especially the Florida, um, you know, anthrax infections, it's still not clear where that anthrax even came from at all. Right. And the FBI, to my knowledge, the CDC also never found any actual trace of spore. They might've found some minute traces, but they were never able to distinguish like where they came from, how much there was in there. And oddly, Whitney, Rudy Giuliani's anthrax cleanup effort uh, really, apparently it was unsuccessful, which is another strange aspect of this, because on one hand you could say, well, Rudy Giuliani didn't know what he was doing. He started up this company to try to make money off of these attacks, you know, like sort of disaster capitalism and he messed up and he had to abandon the operation, but it doesn't make sense because Rudy Giuliani's company was actually a joint effort between himself, Rudy Giuliani. It's like, he has like an LLC under his own name between himself and this company called Sabre Technologies, which did mm -hmm. get no-bid contracts from the federal government to clean up the Brentwood Postal Service or post offices, and they did it relatively fast. I mean, it was an expensive, I think the bill was something in the neighborhood of like $30 million, but they did it relatively fast. So why is it that Rudy Giuliani essentially quarantined this building with the permission of his company, and then he just doesn't do anything. Well, it wasn't for just like, that they quarantined like, the building, too. At the beginning, Giuliani and Bio One said that Bio One's new headquarters, after they cleaned it, were going to be in yes, that building. They wanted exactly. to, They wanted that building really bad. And so it's really suspect that they would keep it, you know, under lock and key for so long. And this really makes me think of the photos. Like, maybe there were photos housed there that they wanted for themselves. This was like some blackmail thing. Uh, potentially that could have been going on there, uh, especially when you consider the fact that the first anthrax victim who died, uh, who 
you know, presumably was poisoned with anthrax at that building, Bob Stevens, was the photo editor of of one of the newspapers there. So however that anthrax got into his system, it's very interesting that he was, you know, a, a major person in the photo department that would have had access to these controversial and contentious photo archives uh there it's just uh i don't know it's just really crazy <laughs> uh crazy well, to another, think about there's another loose data point there that a lot of people have pointed to as the reason why robert stevens was targeted i'm not convinced of this but it is sort of an interesting coincidence that the national Enquirer did run a pretty embarrassing photo spread front cover thing about the bush daughters um basically being like drunk messes and like falling all over the ground. Like one of, I think the pictures actually looks like one of the Bush daughters, like humping the leg of like some frat boy. And they're clearly like drunk, you know, fucking shit faced. Um, so that, and, and, but the, but the problem with that theory is that Robert's, I actually have that issue. I'm looking at it right now. It's on my bookshelf. Uh, Robert Stevens name is nowhere in that issue. And I poured over it. I don't see a direct connection there. But there there's, is another interesting connection with in terms of this blackmail theory that you're proposing is that David Pecker, who is the CEO of AMI, he was in charge of not just the Inquirer but also the Sun. He's a long-term friend of Donald Trump, and apparently he was the one who brokered these deals between uh, St- Stormy Daniels and this other – I want what was her name? Um, Karen McDougal. In August 2016, it says AMI paid Karen McDougal, this is from The New Yorker, a former Playboy model, $150,000 for a story about a nine-month affair with Trump, and then never published an article about it. Well, the theory is, the working theory of all this, for some journalists who've looked into this, is that this was their blackmail model. They would be like, we want to do a story about you having an affair with Donald Trump, but in reality, they just want to basically pay her off and hide the story. So whether there, if there were any photos from this, it's unclear. But this is appears part of their blackmail model. Now I'm sure other, you know, it had to be a lot of other people other than Trump. But it's just another interesting coincidence that Rudy is so close to Trump, and he was in a position to destroy, and apparently did destroy, some of AMI's photo archives. Yeah. What were in those archives? Mm-hmm. So. I don't know what that means, but it's just it's kind of a coincidence that can't really be ignored. Yeah, well, it's interesting too when you consider the fact. Um, I this was another thing I wanted to cover a couple of years ago, but didn't get to. This happens to me <laughs> all the time. But basically, in twenty, this happened when I was investigating my Epstein series uh, because I was looking for information on the Roy Cohn disbarment hearing that happened in the nineteen eighties because the character witnesses for Roy Cohn were people like Donald Trump and Alan Dershowitz. People like that. But right when Trump had announced his candidacy in 2015, and not long before then, all of the records, the only records, physical copies, I guess, of those old court cases, and presumably other ones, we don't know, I don't don't really know how how many it was, uh, were in this warehouse that somehow... was on fire and basically the New York Fire Department just uh, watched it burn for three days. And so that entire, uh, whether that was the intention of the blaze or not, I mean, who knows, right? But it's interesting that they didn't try and put it out, even though it was full of these physical records of important court cases uh, from the, in the city from the 1980s. Um, Now we have no way to access what, you know, Donald Trump said about Roy Cohn's character, for example, or Alan Dershowitz. So, you know, maybe, yeah. So, you know, this whole thing of, oh, you know, oh, the evidence is gone, (laughs) right? At at opportune uh, times for this, this, you know, 
um, faction of power players and in politics and and what have you um you know it's something that that does uh coincidentally i guess you could say seem to happen uh to people in this orbit it's pretty pretty wild yeah i bet you even if we looked at more deeply into rudy giuliani's past we'd find some interesting disappeared evidence as well you know um oh for sure yeah, it's you know just with his own in terms of his own personal corruption. It's possible some of the mafia case stuff from the '80s was in there too, because it was this around the same period. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I mean, who knows? Um, but but pretty very crazy interesting to consider. So um, <clears throat> anything else you want to say about Bio One, uh, so we can get on uh, to some other stuff? Yeah, I, I I did have something else to say about it, and I kind of lost my train of thought. Give me one second. Um, yeah, I mean, I will say that Saber Technologies itself is a suspicious company. And um, they, I think they in general need to be more deeply looked into. Because my thinking on this and from what I've researched is that Bio One seems to be Rudy just basically piggybacking on what Saber had already done, whatever expertise they claim to have, whatever technology they had. And he's just sort of stamping his name on their business model um now i couldn't get any answers really about this when i talked to saber technology and there does seem to be sort of a hush hush mentality when it comes to what happened to bio one like what it would even happen to it um did, did rudy giuliani close it you know wh- wh- where was it but interestingly whitney what i found is that even before it officially announced um saber and bio one were somehow representing themselves as the same company previous to 2004. So whatever Rudy Giuliani's press release was that we're launching bio one in 2004, we're going to do this and that, um, this must've been in the works for much longer. And, you know, there are little data points here and there that point to that. Um, but it does seem like someone's actually tried to erase that as well, uh, erase that evidence. And surprisingly, the only clear evidence I could find is I found a bio one, location um in some business park in the middle of nowhere really and on the google satellite map you know it shows the signs of the business names on this business park and you grow back as far as possible and it doesn't go back as far as when bio one existed so what i did is i called the real estate agent who happened to still have his business in there who was there since like 1999 and he's like oh yeah i remember the sign it said bio one slash saber technologies and he was saying that this sign existed there like in like mid 2002. So to me, that tells me that someone is trying to cover up that Rudy was actually working with Sabre Technologies much earlier than 2004. And so I guess that's the last thing I'll say about it. Well, in in 2002, that's when Rudy Giuliani, I guess on his uh, post 9-11 glow uh, or whatever, uh, created his consulting firm that he still has today, I'm pretty sure, called Giuliani Partners. And yeah. it was Giuliani Partners that, like, uh, created Bio One and then got in bed with Sabre. So, you know, if that was in mid-2002, it was probably uh, going on as soon as Giuliani set up Giuliani Partners. It's worth pointing out that in 2002, uh, people like Jerome Howard, we were talking about his relationship with Giuliani and all of that earlier. Um, he, in early 2002, was at a key position at HHS that was basically newly created to respond to pan- pandemics and bioterror events in the after the anthrax attacks. Right. And was involved in mm-hmm. uh, the beginnings of the strategic national stockpile and giving a lot of 
contracts out involved in, uh, you know, with the pharmaceutical industry and things like that during that um, same period. And it's worth pointing out, too, that Giuliani's uh, Giuliani Partners, one, probably their biggest and most famous cli client uh, ever since it was created, um, has been Purdue Pharma, which, of course, is the producer of Oxycontin. And Giuliani Partners was hired specifically to do Oxycontin-related work uh, for wow. Purdue. Uh, so that's pretty interesting, especially when you consider the growth of the, opio o uh, the opioid crisis, uh, really from that period, uh, you know, invasion of Afghanistan, invasion of Iraq. Uh, to now, you know, uh, Giuliani, uh, you know, played a role in that through Giuliani Partners. I mean, paid millions of dollars by Purdue to allegedly, uh, you know, stop the misuse of their drugs. And we, of course, know how that often gets twisted um, in that type of consulting work to end up being the opposite, um, among other things. But it's interesting to see people like, you know, Giuliani becoming involved with these big pharma firms after the anthrax attacks. Um, and also Jerome Hauer at the same time involved in in sort of, you know, um, a liaison-ish role um, with pharma and HHS in that newly created uh, position uh, that he was in at HHS. And later he becomes involved, of course, with, you know, uh, companies like Emergent Biosolutions, Bioport, the anthrax vaccine manufacturer and things like that. So I think that's an interesting thing. And the last thing I wanted to point out about um, Giuliani's post 9-11 career is that he has been a longtime uh, supporter of um, the MEK, which is the anti-Iranian yes. government group, which is uh, stands for like Mujahideen al-Khalq or something like that. And um, now he's a big supporter of the Falun Gong. It's just right, right. But MEK is worth pointing out because they're openly and have been for a long time Marxist, right? Communists. And of course, Julie, you know, all this posturing, like, you know, oh, the CCP is evil and communism is uh, fighting us in the US. We're fighting communists and Marxists and all of this stuff. He's been paid for years by a Marxist group called the MEK. And a lot of the people that he, you know, uh, th that join him from the US power establishment, I guess you could say, in supporting the MEK at their annual events and things like that are people like James Woolsey, the former CIA director who was at Dark Winter with yeah. Jerome Hauer and involved in uh, a lot of the false narratives around 9-11 and things like that. And of course, more recently, he's also uh, a major China hawk like Giuliani um, today. And so it's interesting to say the chi some of the China hawks like Woolsey um, and Giuliani, you know, being on obviously like tied up with this super shady uh, MEK group that, oh, okay, if they're gonna, so, you know, create this narrative that the enemy of all Americans are communists and Marxists, like, why are you, why have you guys been affiliated with that group? I mean, obviously, you know, you and I know why. It's because they're like a CIA, uh, Mossad front, basically, that is used to, um, mm -hmm. you know, put pressure on Iran's government because they've been trying to overthrow that regime for a really long time and or go to war with it <laughs> right yeah um, so you know it's definitely interesting to think about and really um uh does a lot of damage to this whole uh narrative and in their posturing i guess you could say with respect to china uh that they've been trying to push you know the magaverse into um while at the same time you know they have ties to groups that openly uh espouse that same ideology it's a little weird huh it is a little weird, and it's also really convenient why the fentanyl scare has now sort of taken over the dialogue in American culture about dangerous opioids rather than the direction that it was going in, Whitney, for a long time, which was it almost seemed like it was culminating in, yeah, the Sackler family, Johnson & Johnson, the people, the Purdue who are making OxyContin are tr basically trying to kill people and get people hooked on drugs. And then all of a sudden, 
whoop, we veer away from that. And it's all of a sudden, it's all about Chinese fentanyl producing these yeah. illicit labs to corrupt the black market of the drug trade here and to kill junkies. And it's like, wait a second, how did that switch so fast? Well, it's actually really easy to explain. It's because Purdue and all these companies have are in bed with all these political actors and China hawks and also fund think tanks like the Hudson Institute, mm -hmm. like these other uh, think tanks that put out all this fear mongering about China. So it's almost like the one of the clearest examples I've seen, not even after the pandemic, but before of how a company could get just a few of these like hardcore political actors, these nefarious people to sort of create a new narrative and veer it away from where it was already building before, which was building to a, a place that was almost like true populism. Like we, this company, these companies are doing a serious damage to our country. And instead it's now just like, no, it's a foreign country doing it. It's China. Also the same people that, you know, probably released this from a lab and, you know, tried to kill us already. It, it, so it's very, very convenient to see all this stuff shift in the direction it is and mentioning MAK. I mean, it's just also so weird to see these same people investing so much into this Falun Gong media front apparatus, yeah. which is clearly being propped up by the U.S. government in some form, yeah. whether it's just the Broadcasting Board of Governors or whatever. I mean, the amount of the budget they seem to have is enormous. Um, so, yeah, it's just strange that it's like another cult with, you know, probably CIA or State Department backing in some capacity. And it's the same people, you know, Rudy, Gingrich. You know, Gorka, I don't know what his connection was to MEK, but I'm sure ba a Bolton, you know, is probably yeah. behind or pushing this too. I don't re haven't really been paying attention to what he's been doing lately, but it's just so crazy, Whitney. I, I don't even, and, and I really don't think most people are even paying attention to this. I mean, a lot of even neoliberals are like, yeah, fentanyl, Chinese fentanyl is like the biggest problem right now. I mean, they've, they've sort of all switched to that too. So well, what's crazy too is that ever since the, the COVID thing started, uh, fentanyl is now being praised in the media as like the savior of Corona. Like it's used a lot in treatments and things like that. Yeah. Um, and is being sold more than ever. And also because of lockdowns, abuse of opioids is higher than ever. And we haven't been hearing about it at all. Um, mm -hmm. and that obviously they, they've restricted a lot of imports from China and also Wuhan used to be an epicenter for, uh, the raw materials to create opioids. And that was sort of totally hit when the whole crisis started last year. Uh, so there was, you know, changes in supply chains and all of this stuff, but like none of this has been talked about at all. And it's just really weird to see how COVID sort of been used to, um, take a lot of the heat off of some of these uh, companies and, and families that were getting in a lot of shit, honestly, uh, last year, or sorry, now it's 2021. So in 2019, we're getting a lot of shit um, for their role in perpetuating the opioid crisis. So of course you had the Sacklers being outed even by mainstream media for several years. Um, but what happened in 2019 is that you have Tima, Tiva Pharmaceuticals, which is one of uh, the largest pharmaceutical firms in Israel, uh, being indicted in several US states for their role in the opioid crisis. And I mean, the largest one of the largest shareholders in that is Warren Buffett, who's really tied up with the Gates Foundation um, and, and things like that. And like all of that, um, you know, uh, the fear, the, the narrative which came out in these indictments that they were perpetuating and exacerbating the opioid crisis in the U.S. for profit. Right. Uh, just that just disappeared also. So, yeah, a lot of the pressure by various means, whether it's, you know, this faction that we're talking about or or COVID or whatever, it just seems really convenient that the narrative on the opioid crisis has changed. But um, <laughs> not to get too off topic. Right. But it, it, it is a really interesting rabbit hole, that one. Um, 
So sorry if I digressed a little bit, but I wanted to get into Bernard mm-hmm. Carrick a little bit since we're running a little short on time. Sure. Um, uh, but I, oh, I did want to add though, the Falun Gong thing right there behind the Epoch Times, if I'm not mistaken. And that is an outlet, uh, that is being really frequently shared by people like Lynn Wood, who we talked about a little earlier. And a lot of these people in like MAGAverse, uh, Trumpverse, <laughs> Trump world, whatever you want to call it, um, about promoting a lot of this anti-China stuff. And you have Lynn Wood too, uh, saying things like, uh, the, it was the Chinese Communist Party that attacked us on election day. That that's his narrative that he's sort of going with now, which is sort of like China. It's like a, you know, China gate instead of Russia gate, you know, that sort of narrative he's spinning and a lot of it. Uh, and then saying that we have to prepare for war because China's preparing for war. And the link he posts is poor proof or whatever um, is an Epoch Times article. That's like some fear mongery, whatever, that China's preparing to uh, murder every American or something like that. Um, and of course, doesn't <laughs> distinguish the fact that like this crazy, most likely backed by the CIA culty group. And China, backed by all these people that back like MEK and whatever, um, you know, is the outlet, is is behind that outlet. So that's just something I wanted to add to that before getting into Carrick. Anything else you want to um, say on that before we move on? Um, uh, I mean, I, I guess I'll just say that, you know, one thing I think people should be looking at is that project for the new American century, you know, has actually split and fra- and factionalized yes, to some totally. degree. And I don't think I, I just think a lot of people have gotten to this reductive framework where it's like, well, if Kagan and Crystal hate Trump, then that means all the neocons hate Trump. Well, you really have to comb through the details to see that that's just a totally distorted narrative. I mean, even just Michael Flynn, who is the hero of the QAnon narrative, is really good friends with Michael Ledeen and his family. I mean, they spend time together barbara ladine they wrote a book together didn't they yeah they wrote a book fucking book together so like that's one of the scariest pnac people that i can name besides like the kagan siblings you know so it it, so i think that's really important but also just the committee on the present danger china which is a very obscure think tank but happens to have several members of pnac in it i think four by my last count woolsey you know some of these people are connected to like the, the anthrax stuff. So those people are constantly on ep- epic times. In fact, one of the yeah. guys named Jan Jenelik, who's part of a uh, committee on present danger, China, he hosts a show on epic times. It seems like it's just basically a pipeline, you know, for this weird faction of project for the new American century neocons. And also if you read rebuilding America's defenses, the infamous document that said we need a new mm-hmm. Pearl Harbor, the majority of that document is talking about China. And I think yeah. that's something that just a lot of people have ignored over the years or haven't taken seriously, it but it's all there. The need for Space Force exactly. <laughs> is in that Neocon document. Exactly. Two major things that Trump has heavily pushed and actually gotten to take float since his administration. Yeah. So isn't that a coincidence that rebuilding America's defenses actually mapped out two things that Trump kind of successfully put in play? So, you know. I, I think people need to be looking at that much more deeply and stop seeing the neocons as some kind of unified front where all of them are all in unanimous agreement. I mean, maybe they still are and they're just pretending to be factionalized, you know, but it's it's I don't know, they're, though. They're... <laughs> um, hard to say. Yeah, but I think, you know, um, you look at the people like Kagan's and Crystal, whatever. I mean, those guys coalesced several years ago around like Romney and that faction within the Republicans 
Um, and then, of course, ties to the Obama administration, like Bob Kagan's wife is Victoria Newland, who was in the State Department under Obama and is going to be in the State Department under a Biden administration. Um, so, I mean, they definitely uh, swim in a couple of ponds, but they definitely don't seem to be in the Trump uh Trump side of things very much at all. Um, but, you know, I think a lot of these people know how uh, Trump is being played uh, by more powerful actors, you know, so I don't really know how much they, how much, you know, um, in, in, uh, how much they focus on his, his act, specifically people, power brokers like the Kagan family and stuff like that. But, you know, I'm getting a little too speculative here because <laughs> I don't really know what they do in private. I just know what they've done publicly, really. Um, so yeah. um, anyway, with that being said, I wanted to move into Bernard Carrick pretty quickly. And in the interest of time, we'll probably, I'll probably uh, go through some of this pretty quickly, but feel free to uh, pop in whenever, Robbie. So, okay. um, I wanted to start off, so Bernard Carrick, we mentioned earlier, is basically a protege of Rudy Giuliani. I mentioned earlier that they, he met Giuliani in 1990. Uh, they've been, their careers have been very intertwined ever since, and um, except for the period of time where Bernard Carrick was in prison. Uh, but of course, uh, under the Trump administration, Carrick has sort of made a comeback and ended, uh, ended up actually being pardoned in uh, almost a year ago, in February 2020, uh, by Trump uh, for some of the um, you know, crimes he ended up being convicted of, which included things like bribery and tax fraud and several things. I think he served four years in prison for that um, at one point or another. But of course, since the pardon, um, some of the things Bernard Carrick has been doing, and of course, you know, a longtime associate of Giuliani, he's been promoting a lot of the claims that Giuliani made at these post-election press conferences. One of the ones that he was most instrumental in promoting was this idea of the hammer and scorecard theory, the hammer being the supercomputer of the deep state and scorecard being some software program that I guess was involved in tabulating votes and that those two uh, things combined is why Trump did not win the election. Um, and so, you know, he went on Fox to promote that and several other 2020 election claims. Um, but it's, you know, it, oh, and also the Four Seasons press conference you're talking about earlier with Giuliani, Bernard Carrick is uh, standing behind him <laughs> in that in that case. And, um, you know, it's just interesting to see this figure resurrected when you take a look at his history. So going through his history really quick, um, he went into the army straight out of high school and then after leaving the army um, becomes a security expert, quote unquote, in the Middle East. And his clients at that time include uh, the Saudi royal family, which is a pretty interesting post to move out of as soon as you leave the service. You become a Middle East security expert and, uh, you know, immediately get uh, <laughs> uh, clients, uh, uh, you know, the Saudi royals as, a, as clients. It's pretty um pretty impressive. Um, at some point after that, he went and became involved with the, um, worked for a sheriff's office in New Jersey. And then he becomes like head of security and investigations at some really ritzy hospital in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. Um, he ends up being, uh, uh, kicked out basically of Saudi Arabia by the Saudi secret police, uh, who found out that he was, uh, spying on people's private affairs uh, particularly women that he became romantically involved with or wanted to get romantically involved with. Uh, he was spying on them for, you know, blackmail and other things and got investigated by the Saudi government and kicked out. So huh. that's pretty, pretty impressive. And this is all before he even met Giuliani, who he meets in 1990, like I said, becomes his bodyguard and driver through that unsuccessful campaign for mayor. While Giuliani uh, is later becomes mayor, he appoints Carrick to be first uh, the commissioner of corrections or the prison commissioner, basically, um, of New York City. 
Um, and he later gets promoted to the role of police commissioner, which is uh, a position he held at the time of September 11th, 2001, meaning that he led the response to 9-11. We already talked about some of, you know, uh, that Giuliani and Carrick and were at this uh, one at this one building they claimed they were trapped in and blah, 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 had to go to the pier for Tripod 2 and all of that stuff, right? But what's really interesting about Carrick specifically is that less than two weeks after 9-11, uh, he takes uh, a, a rather odd trip to the state of Israel, uh, and he's there for four days. And during that period of time, he meets um, the uh, f members of the family, which at the time, and I think may still be the richest family in Israel, at least as of 2013, they were still the richest family of Israel, um, which are the Wertheimers, who were, I believe their company is called Iskar, um, which actually is now owned also by Warren Buffett, <laughs> um, oddly enough. But uh, of course, that was not the case at this time. And so they have this meeting, um, whatever, um, and it's not really clear what happens, though a few years later, uh, Wertheimer is part of what ends up sending Carrick to prison. So we'll come back to that. Uh, visit in a little bit. So, um, uh, so after that visit to Israel in 2002, right, he becomes part of uh, Giuliani Partners with Giuliani, um, and then ends up doing his own, setting up his own consulting firm not long after, uh, where his clients include the royal families of Jordan and the United Arab Emirates. So, I mean, this is a pretty, uh, it's pretty impressive his ability to get, uh, you know, the, the royal family of wealthy Gulf states on his client role. Uh, so easily uh, over the years going back to his early history. That's definitely something that's interesting when you consider also that after the invasion of Iraq, um, uh, the Bush administration appoints Carrick to actually be the interim interior minister of Iraq. So he's basically one of the major figures in Iraq's provisional temporary post-invasion government. Uh, and what's interesting here is that in that capacity, because, you know, people hear interior minister and they're like, what exactly does the interior minister do, right? Um, because it's like kind of a broad um, umbrella, I guess you could say. But in this case, um, in terms of what Carrick was doing in Iraq under this title, is that he was recreating not only uh, the police force of Iraq, um, but also their custom and borders patrol equivalent and also their intelligence agencies. So Carrick was involved. Uh, that was the whole portfolio he was running, basically, at that time on behalf of the Bush administration. I mean, that's hugely significant, I think. The rebuilding of basically, you know, the national security apparatus of Iraq was in this guy's hands uh, not that long after 9-11. And of course, he's on the payroll of not only of these wealthy uh, Gulf family, uh, royal families, um, but also, as I mentioned earlier, that Wertheimer, the Wertheimer family that he met with right after 9-11 um, in June 2003, um, he gets this $250,000 interest-free loan that he never pays back that the U.S. government later uh, convicts him uh, uh, of taking because they considered it a bribe. So it's not, so if I call it a bribe, it's not just me like saying, well, it looks like a bribe. It is a bribe. I mean, this was like legally considered to be a bribe and he was convicted and went to prison for this. Um, this guy gave him all this, uh, you know, all that, that significant amount of money, this, you know, the richest man in Israel, um, at the time he was in this post in Iraq, which is pretty significant when you consider, um, you know, the cheerleading and the big push from Israel's government in uh, the invasion of Iraq, you know, like Netanyahu's uh, speeches before Congress about positive reverberations around the region if you take out Saddam Hussein, blah, 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 and pushing for that on multiple fronts. You know, it's pretty, um, oh, pretty wild. And so the question then becomes, so what did Wertheimer, the Wertheimers want from Bernard Carrick 
um, why he was in that position. Um, mm-hmm. So the Wertheimers, you know, their main, uh, the, the company Iskar that they're, that made them uh, billionaires, it basically makes a lot of like advanced metallurgy and metalworking tools and industry tools and stuff like this. But what's interesting is that um, at some point before the Iraq invasion, uh, the Wertheimer family, specifically the head of that family, who's a guy named Steph Wertheimer, um, he was promoting what he called his Middle East Marshall Plan. And it was basically a plan to like create, it's sort of, this is really crazy, really similar to how Kushner has promoted his Israel-Palestine quote-unquote peace thing, sort of like resolving Middle East conflict through economics instead of, and so the way Wertheimer would describe it is like instead of uh, diplomas like uh, using dip- peace through diplomats it's peace through economics and peace through capitalism and all of this stuff and if you look at like a lot of the documentation put out by like the White House on, on the Kushner Middle East stuff specifically for Palestine it's all about like you know startups and uh, having them be economically you know um, you know all focused on getting them to uh, you know yeah. there's a lot of capitalism googly guck talks you know <laughs> Well, just uh, really quickly, I want to say that anything, but yeah, mm-hmm. one of the one of the foreign policy initiative founders who, you know, is arguably sort of graduated to the rank rank of like Bill Kristol and Robert Kagan, um, along with Eric Edelman, Robert Kagan, Bill Kristol. There was another founder of that second iteration of PNAC named Dan Senor. Yeah, who works and for one Paul of the, Singer. Yeah. One of the biggest things that Dan Senor is involved in was uh, the technology startups in Israel. Yeah. And that was one of Startup his big Nation projects. Central. Yeah. Yeah. And also it must be stated too, that he probably was around Bernard Carrick on a daily basis, him and Paul Bremer and Bernard Carrick yeah. probably spent a lot right. of time together in Iraq because Dan Senor was the spokesperson to the press for the occupation government of Iraq. So he was like the voice of Paul Bremer. Bernard Carrick was this operational planner I mean, so it's just you can't get any crazier than that. Is that Paul Bremer is also a potential 9/11 suspect? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, crazy, so it just. Oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead. Well, what's crazy about what you were saying with Startup Nation Central and Dan Senor, right? That's sort of this idea of using Israel's technology to expand its its global power power and influence, and mainly, you know, its policy goals. And you have people like Isabel Maxwell being these big liaisons between the tech scene you know, Ghislaine Maxwell's sister being these big liaisons between, you know, Silicon Valley and Israel's uh, startup tech scene, which of course is closely tied to Israel's uh, military and intelligence apparatus, right? And so you have, Mm -hmm. you know, the fact that Isabel Maxwell's there when her father and also herself were involved in the promised software scandal of backdoors and stuff like that is really crazy. And they have a lot of overlap with Startup Nation Central, which Dan Senor and, uh, uh, you know, was involved in setting up and also Paul Singer, who uh, Dan Senor works for, basically funded into existence. But what this Wertheimer guy wanted to do um, at that time was basically, instead of using the high-tech startups uh, for that same purpose, wanted to use industry and industrial parks throughout the Middle East for that same uh, purpose of advancing Israeli policy goals. So basically what he wanted to do was build all these industrial parks in different parts of Palestine and say that he was achieving peace through economics. But basically it would mean that those Palestinian communities would be economically dependent on Israel's richest man uh, for their jobs and livelihoods and all these different uh, things that he wanted to set up. 
And he also wanted to set it up in places like uh, Jordan. He ended up setting up one there, which is interesting that uh, Bernard Carrick at the same time uh, was doing consulting work for Jordan's royal family. At the same time, he got this bribe. So maybe it was related to that and not necessarily Iraq. Or maybe Wertheimer wanted some of these industrial parks set up in Iraq if Bernard Carrick is interior minister. So presumably he oversees some public works type of stuff as well, besides the police intelligence agency rebuilding. Uh, but it's definitely interesting uh, to take a look at, um, you know, some of the stuff going on here. But obviously someone like Bernard Carrick, you check his, you know, you look at his trajectory that I sort of just went over from the time he meets Giuliani um, until right before, you know, his, uh, you know, his fall from grace, I guess you could say, which was at the tail end of the Bush administration. Uh, this guy was elevated very quickly. Um, and became very prominent, specifically after 9-11 started, you know, uh, he's, he's head of the police response to 9-11, uh, and then immediately pretty much is put in the, not immediately, but not that long after, is put in this really prominent role in, in post-invasion Iraq. Um, yeah. You know, it's it says on his own bio. I mean, all he says on his own bio to shed light on how he got that position is it just says, Mr. Carrick accepted a request by the White House to lead Iraq's provisional government's efforts to reconstitute the Iraq Interior Ministry. So it's unclear who hired him. From what I've heard, it was Donald Rumsfeld who personally picked him. So that's very strange. I mean, how does he go from that position to this? I mean, it, it really doesn't make any sense unless he played some other deeper role yeah, it's well, you know, you look at his, his history in Saudi Arabia and with these Gulf state rural families, a lot of those rural families, of course, as we know, have very deep ties to U.S. intelligence agencies. Mm -hmm. Like the Saudi rural family and the CIA, um, of course, talking about before Mohammed bin Salman came to power relatively recently, you know, have always been, uh, you know, for a really long time, really cozy. So it's interesting that right out of the army, you know, he becomes the security expert that has Saudi royals among his his uh, clients as soon as he just comes out of the army. I mean, that you know, uh, and then that sort of follows him around. He gets this security position in Riyadh and then advises Jordan's royalty and the Emirati royalty, um, you know, to me and, and all these other 9-11 ties and, and all of this. I mean, he just seems to be very much at the intersection of, um, you know, Middle East power politics and, and U.S. intelligence. Um, to me personally, based on his, um, a lot of his history. But what's interesting too is this uh, visit he takes to Wertheimer right after 9-11 when of course we already knew uh, basically the day of 9-11, the Bush administration was planning the invasion of Iraq, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, he takes this trip to, to Israel and meets this Wertheimer guy that would later bribe him. And then after the bribe starts heavily promoting um, this Middle East Marshall Plan, which by the way, that Marshall Plan, its biggest proponent in Congress at the time was George Mitchell, who we now know uh, was sexually blackmailed by Jeffrey Epstein at that time, uh, who, you know, and um, was involved, was supposed to be a negotiator not that long after um, of Israel-Palestine stuff. It was uh, heavily compromised by Epstein. Right. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it's really interesting to see the richest man in Israel. Of course, we know that there's Israeli intelligence ties um, with Epstein, you know, the person that becomes the biggest proponent of Israel's richest man's Middle East Marshall Plan that he wants the U.S. to fund. Right. Um, the biggest mm -hmm. proponent is the guy, you know, obviously compromised by Epstein, who, you know, was involved with both U.S. and Israeli intelligence. But in this case, it looks like, you know. Who's he? Who's George Mitchell helping out with this Middle East Marshall Plan? So I mean, it's it's pretty um, 
pretty wild situation, honestly, but to me, Carrick really seems uh, really as dirty as they come. And I guess even he had his fall from grace because he probably, you know, put his hand in too many pies and got a little carried away, uh, you mm -hmm. know, ascending up the neocon ladder a little too fast, maybe, uh, maybe, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, acted out of rank or whatever a little bit and got some humble pie. I don't know. But now he's, uh, it's possible. It's interesting that this guy has been sort of resurrected, you know, on, uh, in this, you know, post 2020 election era mini era mm -hmm. i mean era is kind of a long term so i guess a you know period well, kind of reminds me mm -hmm. a little bit of what happened with oliver north and i and i know there's not any really direct parallels there but it's like you know after oliver north acts as this fall guy seemingly willingly for some kind of operation you know that probably even went much deeper than what we know about iran contra he gets resurrected after his jail stint as this like Fox News personality, you know, telling and war the head stories. Of the NRA and all the stuff. Yeah. Yes. So Bernard Carrick has a similar trajectory where, where it's not just that he's now like a Fox News personality. You know, he did a segment even with Tucker Carlson like a year and a half ago where he's talking all about how we should overthrow Maduro. And that's why I've never been like, wait a second, Tucker's not good on Venezuela. He's not good on war. What are you talking about? He's got a 9 11 suspect sitting across from him advocating for the removal of Maduro, <laughs> you know, while yeah. talking about the deep state, something's not right here. But the what it's interesting about Bernard Carrick is out of all these Trump surrogates, you know, you look at Rudy, look at Gorka. I'd say maybe besides Flynn, Bernard Carrick seems to be the one who's dabbling the most in conspiracy sort of deep politics lingo in a manipulative way. He, Bernard Carrick is talking all the time now about how the deep state's out to get Trump how the deep states behind this and that. So, you know, I, I have to ask myself, any at this point, anyone who's like prominently on TV, who's a surrogate for a president talking about the deep state should be automatically looked at as someone who is part of the deep state because yeah. it's really suspicious. And to me, it's just odd, an odd manipulative way to sort of not just, you know, work the conspiracy movement, but to give them this hope of mean. And it really is almost like a parallel to QAnon. I don't know if Bernard Carrick himself is part of QAnon or hasn't, you know, believes in it, but he's pushing similar rhetoric right now. And strangely, he went on Newsmax last week and said that he is acting on behalf of the president to help negotiate some kind of pardon of the Silk Road founder, Ross Ulbricht. Now, that's a very strange proposal for Bernard Carrick to be out there making. Yeah. Is that more carried on a stick, hoping to make people believe that Trump is opposed to the deep state and is some kind of hero who's going to pardon all these whistleblowers, including Snowden and Assange, which frankly, we've seen no evidence of that to be yeah. the case. I think um, it is more hopamine or whatever. I don't think Russ Ulbricht should be in prison. I think he should be pardoned. I think that's exactly yeah. why it's very unlikely uh, that it's going to happen. But I think at the very least what we're seeing, you know, is that even uh, though it seems highly unlikely that Trump would pardon someone like Russ Ulbricht because, you know, it's a person that should be pardoned. But I mean, they were basically he was basically taken down by the U.S. National Security State and put in prison. Yeah. Right? Um, so it's very unlikely, in my opinion, uh, that Trump would pardon him. But what we have are people that are visibly tied up with the Trump verse, like Bernard Carrick, right, in this instance, uh, who have made uh, people really believe that Trump is doing this, whether or not Trump is actually doing it. Um, and, and spreading these things behind the scenes. I think you were saying that, like, Carrick um, was saying this to people that are really close, like like to Russell Brick's family. 
giving well, like, so, giving them those people like direct uh, hold people of close something. to the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people close to the case believe that this is a real thing that's happening. Not that they believe that it's going to happen, but that someone they they have confirmed with me that someone from Trump's side is putting out this rhetoric intentionally to give the impression that this may happen. So there is some kind of op happening to keep stringing along people who are into deep politics or anti-deep state, even if they're not QAnoners, honors to basically be like, yeah, maybe Trump is good. Maybe we should placate his ego and grovel to him about pardoning Assange for the next month. Maybe that's going to help. And that to me is just fascinating because that's like exactly what Trump wants is just people to be groveling at him to be sort of worshiping him. If he didn't pardon Assange by now, I really doubt he's going to do it. Exactly. <laughs> and now, Why? you know, after the he ruling He only should the get Assange the credit case, for this right. if he actually does it. I mean, that's what's so weird. It's like, why give him any credit for anything until he's actually done it? You know, but it's it keeps happening over and over again. So, like, again. the U.S. government lawyers are going to appeal the recent no extradition ruling in the Assange case, right? So, like, does of that course. sound like someone who's going to pardon Assange? Uh, the people that are going to appeal that no extradition ruling. I mean, I just think it's, uh, you know, just more hopium, uh, unfortunately. So um, <clears throat> anyway, um, this is probably um, as good a place to end it as as anywhere else, I guess. Uh, we didn't really have much time to get into Lynn Wood's history, um, but it is a little weird. But what's uh, important now, I guess, despite his uh, what was going on in his more distant past um, is the fact that now that he's taken this prominent role in, uh, you know, the MAGA sphere or whatever, um, he is also representing uh, prominent, I guess you could say, MAGA figures uh, like Nick Sandman from the Covington Boys controversy and also, I believe, Kyle Rittenhouse. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, so, it, which just doesn't make, make sense. I mean, maybe in private or maybe like he's a good lawyer, like in the office, but like his public facing persona just seems to be so off the rails that I don't even understand why someone, you know, like Nick Sandman probably did have a legitimate case. Yeah. So why would he go with a law? Why would he go with Lynn Wood? I mean, who is, it's like, I mean, just so when you really think about it, my question is answered by the fact that Yes, there was a real lawsuit that took place, but it was obviously part of some like larger optical political right wing op. They probably, you know, all these people probably have the same network. They probably connected him with Lynn Wood. You mm-hmm. know, Trump is on this recording that leaked from the Georgia Secretary of State saying that you guys are going to be shocked at this video that we're going to put out in, you know, in a couple of days. And it's like, as Trump's saying that, I'm thinking the White House doesn't put out videos of election fraud. He's probably talking about like James O'Keefe or something. Mm-hmm. Like he probably just mean when he says we, he means like all of his surrogates, you know, who just like are this coordinated front. So that's just baffling to me is like why anyone who's seriously interested in winning a lawsuit would hire someone like Lynn Wood or Sidney Powell. Well, I it's, think Lynn Wood has a history of, of doing defamation cases. Um, we're not, we don't have time to go into his history too much here, but he did uh, defamation cases, I believe, also like for John Benet Ramsey's parents, um, mm-hmm. and also a guy that was accused of FBI of being uh, behind the 1996 uh, bombing uh, during the Olympics in Atlanta. Richard Jewell, yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, I guess he had, you know, that sort of specialization in that sense. And uh, I think at that time, the guy enjoyed going sort of toe to toe with the media in defense of his clients. Um, He certainly did that during the Atlanta bombing, but it obviously wasn't unhinged in the way a lot of what he's doing now publicly is. But, you know, maybe 
Um, I don't know. I mean, a lot of his rhetoric, political rhetoric these days, is very Bannon-esque. So it's it, it's 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 worth considering. You know, is he uh, being funded to do this, or has he sort of been, you know, pandemic war room brainwashed <laughs> and really believes it? I mean, we don't really know. But the fact mm. that he's been so promoted and has risen in this way and is able to get away with saying all this crazy stuff, and he has the QAnon you know, where we go one, we go all handle on his Twitter bio, which is a pretty obvious endorsement of that whole movement. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, it's pretty, um, it's pretty clear there was a shift with this guy at some point. But to me, it seems uh, pretty obvious that he, um, you know, doesn't necessarily believe a lot of the stuff he's publicly promoting. And he, you know, now has his own media enterprise about his fireside chats and all this stuff. So to me, it just looks like Bannon style uh, QAnon-y grift. Uh, more than anything else, but dangerous grift, uh, especially with his promotion of this limited martial law thing. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, or the, quote, the, quote, that's limited martial yeah, law. Yeah, limited martial law. <laughs> I mean, that means, dude. it's and it's so weird too because if he is just if this is just some kind of performance to feed you know fan the flames and like amplify the QAnon rage. Yeah. Um. Then you see also interesting things happening like people from other parts of Trump's team trying to sort of quietly throw him under the bus or sort of put him off to the side. I mean, I think it was even Jenna Ellis. It was somebody who was working for Giuliani. I don't know if it was Ellis, but somebody tweeted, uh, Lynn Wood is, uh, he's like, not, doesn't represent us. This is like dangerous. Cause he basically Newt said, uh, said that Mike, also. Yeah, Mike Pence is going to be shot by a firing squad. Linwood is out there saying. So it's interesting to see these splits happening. It's like, so is Trump actually like relying more and more on these crazier, more performative people and shutting out people like Newt King? It's really hard to tell. I mean, so that situation, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. It's probably not going to be pretty, um, but it is fascinating. I mean, I. I'm I'm really baffled at Lynn Woods' involvement in this. Yeah, well, um, I'm sure we'll be hearing more from him in the past couple days, especially as this Stop the Steel rally happens and any potential craziness that goes on that day or in its aftermath as we get closer to January 20th, of course, which will be Inauguration Day, which, uh, you know, I mean, it's just going to be a really interesting January politically for the U.S. is really <laughs> all I can say at this point. seems like there's a couple flashpoints this month for some really uh, crazy electoral... Uh, chaos and further political division within the U.S. So um, we covered a lot of ground today. We went pretty long. Uh, so I guess, uh, you know, this is a good time to wrap it up. So thanks a lot, Robbie, for for coming on, uh, sharing, um, you know, a lot of what you know about, uh, you know, these things uh, like, like Bio One and Giuliani. And of course, your expertise on QAnon. I forgot to mention uh, during this podcast that you've done multiple hours um, at Media Roots uh, doing deep dives on QAnon. Um, specifically. So anyone interested in learning more about, you know, that movement, who may be behind it, how it rose to prominence and things like that, please make sure to check out Robbie's stuff. Thanks, Whitney, um, for mentioning all that. And I'll just tell your listeners that if they happen to check out our Schrodinger Super Patriot episode going through the whole first few months of the anthrax attacks and before, it's kind of done in the style of a true crime podcast. Uh, mm-hmm. We are still planning on doing a part two which will fill in the rest of that timeline all the way till the conclusion of the FBI investigation. And there's going to be a lot of Giuliani sort of reveals in that. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm excited about that. I don't know when that's going to come out, but um, awesome. that will be coming out and Giuliani will be a, have a starring role in that. 
Yeah. So with that being said, uh, don't trust Giuliani. <laughs> Not that anyone listening to this podcast really does. Uh, but definitely worth pointing out since he's become such a prominent figure um, on the right in, in the pro-Trump sphere uh, during this particularly contentious period of American political history. So with that being said, thank you all for listening and catch you guys next time on Unlimited Hangout. Thank you.